You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. But before we get started... Just a reminder, folks, you know what? We have this wonderful, I think, 800-page commentary that Jared's written on on Jonah. Jonah, no, it's not 800 pages. That would be, that would no. be insane. Yeah. They're, they're as, they're, but it is you, on Jonah. You'd be surprised at how many very long commentaries are on the book of Jonah. Because you know what? You can be so anally thorough in a little four-chapter right. book, so you just go ahead and do that. But anyway, Jonah for Normal People, folks, is out, and you need to read this and buy it and give it to everybody you know. That's right. So you can just go to Amazon, wherever you get books, and get Jonah for Normal People. I mean, only if you want to respect the blood, sweat, and tears yeah, that I put into poor Jared. writing it. I mean, if you don't, if you don't care about me, then don't, you know, don't bother. It's fine. He's never really written anything good before, and I think he's really <laughs> trying to make this work, folks. So, if you if you would just buy this oh and make him feel goodness. good about it. But oh my goodness. Yeah, so it's... Um, it's part of our series. It's know? part of our series. So we have Genesis out, we have Exodus out, uh, and, and now, now Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, and uh, we have some other books coming out too. Right. We but have... don't don't. No, I'm not, not going to say anything. I would love to. Don't get ahead. They but... got to get Jonah first. Um, yeah, get Jonah first. Yeah. yeah, but I think it was it's fun. Jonah is again one of my favorite books, and I try to bring in critical scholarship and some of the understandings, but also a personal spin on it because I think as you'll see in the book of Jonah itself, I think it invites personal response discussion conversation, argument, and so I try to bring some of that in as well. Okay. Our topic today is a deep dive in the mega church, and our guest is David Ferrier. Yep. David is a journalist and producer from New Zealand. He co-hosts Armchair and Dangerous, a monthly podcast with Dak Shepard and Monica Padman about conspiracy theories. He has a newsletter named Webworm that you can subscribe to at webworm.co. .co, yeah, he's Not very careful. Com. He couldn't afford the he M. He said he couldn't afford the M. Right. .co, webworm.co. But... <laughs> I was really excited to have David on. He's I've been just following uh, what he does with Armchair and Dangerous and recognized that he started writing about megachurches, and I thought it would be a really good guest to talk about some of the scandals. There's been a lot of things in the news. We often have, I don't know if everybody knows this, but we usually have really nerdy guests yeah. who maybe not you wouldn't equate with like pop culture. Right. But sometimes we have people like David on because there this is in the news. These are things right. that are coming up whether it's uh, Hillsong that new documentary mm-hmm. on Discovery Plus or, or other Nexium on HBO. Right. Yeah. So and this also, is Also there's an old good one too on Scientology uh, which is also on HBO which is an amazing and they're all so connected but Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now those are cultish things but we're also talking about the mega church which gets a little bit sort of touchy it can but be a little culty. Well let David bit. Explain yeah. that. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get into it. When you're a young person who is figuring out the world and you're experimenting and you're trying to figure out who you are, I could not think of a worse place to be to make you feel mentally unwell. I keep questioning their motives. Is his motivation saving people from the eternal pits of hell? Or is his motivation to feel really good about himself and to have a nice house and a nice car and to sort of see this empire he's running? Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and 
she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome, David, to the podcast. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're really excited to hear about uh, the work you've been doing on megachurches. There's just this is in the zeitgeist in a lot of the conversations that we've been having, and so it's great to have someone who is an expert journalist who can give us some of the scoop on what's going on, what you've been learning about. But before we do that, mm. maybe you can say a little of your experience with the church and Christianity before you even got into writing about megachurches. Yeah, I guess, like, putting it really simply, I grew up in a Christian home, pretty in New Zealand, pretty bog-standard Christianity, I suppose. I think we sort of, it's funny, my memories aren't great when I was a kid, like, they're kind of faded, like, they're positive memories, but they're hard to access. But we were sort of involved mostly in, like, I guess the Baptist kind of tradition, so not too intense, but also those classic kind of Christian ideas of heaven and hell and leading a moral life and a personal relationship with Jesus and that kind of thing. And, you know, I was pretty into it and I ended up, comically, I mean, I was born on Christmas Day, which is quite funny, or and ended up living in a town in New Zealand called Bethlehem, which is also quite funny. <laughs> I wish I could say I was born in Bethlehem, but I, I moved there later in life. But I ended up attending a private Christian school in Bethlehem in a town called Tauranga in New Zealand. And I really enjoyed it there. Like, I really fitted in. I, in a large part, sort of liked knowing the answers to everything. And I ended up being a, like a prefect at that school. So, you know, rewind to when I was 17. I'd, you know, open assemblies by praying and that kind of thing. So I was super into that kind of world. But I also drifted out of it fairly quickly once I left for university and experienced a few other kind of life things that came into uh, conflict, I guess, with my faith, which which sort of made me walk away to the point where, yeah, all, all cards on the table, I'd describe myself now as a happy agnostic. So, I'm curious, as you were talking about that, did you have any experiences with megachurches growing up in your experience with the church? Like, I, I would have gone to a megachurch at a young age, and so that would have been more of normal for me, but I'm curious if you if that would have been a normal experience for you. To- no, not really. Like I, I've certainly been to a mega church service probably in my late sort of late teens, I'd say, but it was never the norm. So like I was more of a small Baptist church kind of a guy, um, smaller congregations you know, not this emphasis on, you know, amazing musical performances and um, giving money endlessly. Uh, it was much more low key. And I think that's why when I've come to look at mega churches later in life, they've kind of, it's been a very novel thing to me. Like I kind of look at them as a bit of an outsider in a way, and I understand sort of the tenets of how they work, but it's not something that I was immersed in. So I still find it really kind of shocking and interesting and amazing. And, you know, Hillsong is something I started observing uh, sort of from a journalistic sense a while ago. And, you know, then sort of realizing that, oh, like in New Zealand, where I, I spend a lot of my time, there are a lot of versions of Hillsong and they're all literally 
cookie cutter versions of that model to the point where the pastors at those churches uh, talk in the same way that Brian Houston talks. You know, they're the same delivery, exactly the same. And I got really fascinated with that as well because they are just cookie cutters of each other. Can you say a little more about that? Why, why do you think that? Why do you think that is? What is it about the? You have to do it this way. And it has to be a cookie cutter approach to be oh, successful. I think it works. I, I think it just works so well. I mean, you look at how big Hillsong got this huge success story, and you know the money's flowing in, and the there's so many bums on seats, and there's so many souls being saved. That model clearly works. So why not emulate it? And in New Zealand, you've got these mega churches like Life and City Impact and Arise that I've been writing about a lot, and they all, you know, they're all essentially endorsed by Brian Houston. They've all had interactions with Brian Houston over the years. He is their hero. He is their success story. And, you know, those churches have largely been really successful in New Zealand. They, um, they're they big. They work. They have members coming in. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, Brian Houston, he got that formula right. So why wouldn't you copy it? Yeah. Well, that brings up a question for me that I've been thinking about you say that, you know, they work, that model works. Why do you think it works so well? Mm. Well, I think for uh, for a church like Arise, which is the church I've been writing a lot about on my newsletter, Webworm, they, they are in a lot of university towns and they are primarily recruiting young, young people into their church. And I think the mega church system uh, and that sort of certain form of Pentecostal Christianity, it's just really appealing to a certain teenager who is maybe feeling a bit lost in life, doesn't have friends, they're potentially in a new university city. And, you know, these churches actively recruit on campus. They go into hostels, they go into, you know, like their dormitories, they go into um, the, the actual university grounds. And they say, hey, we're having a gathering tonight. Why don't you come and do this fun thing? We've got food or we've got movies or whatever. And people go along and they find, oh, my goodness, Like, here's this really super positive message. This is a sort of a direction for how to live my life. And, oh, my goodness, this music is amazing and slick. And this isn't what I thought church was at all. And, you know, Arise Church in New Zealand, it sits at about 10,000 members, which is Big for New Zealand, you know, we've, we've only got 6 million people that live in the whole of the country, so 10,000 is a big membership. And, you know, the, the, the membership generally stays at about 10,000, it's not rocketing up, and that's just because the churn rate is so high, like they're spitting people out the other side, but they're also getting new university students and young people in immediately, so I think the appeal is like, wow, this is family and and community and excitement. While I'm sort of scared in my first year at university, that might not last my homeliness here. But right now, it's amazing. And, you know, let's get involved. So what are the things, because when you describe it like that, I, from an outside perspective, I think people might say, well, what's wrong with that? Like, oh, that's great. You're offering a meal, you're offering community, you're offering a totally. sense of purpose. So what, what, get, what gets turned around in that? What have you un- uncovered? Yeah, well, I mean, what I've uncovered is that it, it works until it doesn't. So if, if you go along to a church like Arise and you, you know, sign up, to, to God's path and and you choose to be a, a certain type of Christian, 
Um, if you fall in line, it's great. You've got instant family. You've got friends. You've got positivity. You've got all that stuff around you. I think the problems begin for people, and what I certainly found is, is when it yeah it it doesn't work. So you know, one super clear example is if is if you're gay, for example, or a member of the LGBTQI plus community that doesn't fit in immediately. Uh oh, you're sinning. This is a problem, and certainly arise um, does the pray the gay away thing, where you're very specifically told that your sexual orientation is a lie from Satan, um, and you must change. So that's a really simple example of how uh oh. I'm not feeling great about myself now. I now feel terrible and I'm going to be made to feel terrible as long as I exist in the system being myself. Yeah. Another really clear thing I found early on is that these internship systems where they'll bring people in and they'll use them as interns and volunteers and just really work them to the bone because, you know, they're big productions, these services. There's, you know, a huge visual component. It's like setting up for a band to play a gig. It's it's a, it's a huge production and they use interns to run everything and, and that becomes problematic as well. Well, and, and maybe I'll jump in here with a little bit of, of my story too because I was actually a pastor at... I don't know if you would call it a mega church. We had thirty five hundred members. Well, not by New Zealand standards. Well, not right now, sure. of course. <laughs> but we had about we had thirty five hundred members. That's big. It's and, a big people. Yeah, it's a big population. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I was the pastor of Serve, which meant I oversaw all of our volunteer opportunities. And there were two parts of that. There was volunteerism within the church, and then there was volunteer with you know outside the church in terms of outreach and things mm. like that. And one of the reasons that we ended up leaving, and my wife was very critical of this, was the observation that. It's all about getting new people in the door. So everything is about new people <laughs> yeah. and recruiting. And then once you're in, everything falls on you and everyone gets burnt out. They don't ever have any like childcare workers because they won't they don't want to expect any new people to serve. It's only if you've been there for a while and it became that's that churn huh. rate you talked about earlier. It's like we get you in with all the free gifts and then it's a bait and switch. Once you sign on the dotted line as a member, now you're expected to give your whole life away to get new people in. And it almost feels a little bit like a pyramid scheme of sorts. Mm. Uh, no, it, it very much feels like a pyramid scheme. And, you know, you look at how. You know, something I found fascinating about Arise is this honor culture in a lot of these mega churches, and everyone is taught to just endlessly honor their leaders. And you've got at Arise, you've got John Cameron, the lead pastor. He's, you know, he walks in there and he's a celebrity. People all turn to him, they admire him. It's beautiful green rooms before um, gigs, only certain people can go in to meet with him. He's a celebrity in there. And then you've got these university students who have a student loan who have been told to, you know, to do good work. And in God's eyes, you have to, you know, work your ass off and set this service up. And the, the burnout rate is just incredible in there. And there's such a hierarchy and such a structure that, you know, you get. You know, I've, I've talked to, you know, I've been reporting on this now for about one and a half months. And, my, you know, I have literally been now about 600 pages of emails of former interns who are just telling these stories. Because, you know, Arise has been around for 20 years now. There's a lot of them, especially when you consider the churn rate. And they've just been ruined. And they just, they didn't know what happened to them. They just experienced this place that sucked them in that took everything from them, at some point actively encouraged them not to pursue further study and to come and just be involved in church life, suddenly you're cut off from the rest of the world completely and your other friends and everything, your, your whole life just is the church. And it's incredibly hard to leave. You're incredibly stressed out. And when you are spat out the other side, 
you kind of like look around not knowing like what the hell happened. Right. It's funny that you say that because the things that you've been describing, don't question leaders, you belong until you don't, isolate you from the rest of the world. You're just describing cult behavior. Yeah, that was the yeah, question I was going to ask. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, t- it's funny. Throughout all my writing, I haven't said cults because I'm also aware that these churches have a lot of money and I don't particularly want to get done for defamation. So I always go with cult-like because there are some minor differences to an actual cult. But them, you know, it's all pretty questionable. Like all the all the things are pointing in that direction. And, you know, when I first started writing about this stuff, I just watched an amazing documentary called The Vow, which is about the Nexium oh, sex yes. cults. Yeah. And I was watching this thing and it's. I was just thinking this is the same thing, minus like the branding and the rampant sex. It, it's the same thing of this power structure, this leadership structure, working interns to the bone, giving financially giving everything to this church, and and you get trapped in the space. And so the, I was just watching this Nexium thing going. Oh no, this is this mega church. Like this is what we're dealing with here. And you know, it's what and and, and like Nexium, you know, as people tried to get out of that cult. The people left on the inside were just so tied to it, they wouldn't see how bad it was. You only saw it once you got out the other side, which is what I've been trying to do with my reporting is just give voice to those people that have been through it and are on the other side and can now speak about what that experience was like. Right. And you know what What I have picked up on, too, is in, you look at these people who are a part of these movements, let's just call them movements, and you say, how could they be so dumb? But they're not dumb people. No. You know, they're actually, many of them are very educated, but they're looking for someone to give them the answers to tying the complexities of life together. They offer that in some sort of a package. And once you're in, it's really hard to let go of that. And you might be mm-hmm. more prone to put up with various forms of abuse. I, I, look, I, uh, I could not agree more with all of that. And, you know, the people in these systems aren't stupid. There's some incredibly smart people in there. Again, I don't mean to keep going on about Nexium, but a lot of people in Nexium were like really smart, creative, amazing people. And it's, and it's amazing what they got drawn into. But, you know, the, you've got the leaders of these places. They're all, like, to be frank, they're all extreme narcissists. And that comes with a certain type of behavior and a certain type of being. And when you've got these narcissistic leaders leading these places, they're really good at gaining your favor and your trust. And and they, that's all they do. And I think... It's really hard if you've never been involved in church at all or in a religious structure, the the idea of how much your whole life and your whole self-worth gets wrapped up in this place. And certainly with a church like Arise, they're very cynical about how they worm their way into your every aspect of your life, including the database they use to sort of track whether you're attending services and what you're doing and what life groups you've attended. Really? And, you know, oh, yeah, I've just written today on WebRim about the system they use called Flocks, which is a very funny name for their database, <laughs> but they track your attendance. No, it's okay because it's a Christian name. Yeah, because it's a Christian thing. That yeah, you can do whatever you want. You know, For how close you are to God, you know, green through to red. And... um. <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, you can't make some of this stuff up, but yeah, once you're in, it's just, it's so, so hard to leave. Well, I have some thoughts on that, but I'm trying to figure out how to get there, but because I think I want to ask the question first, but I do have some thoughts around it and I want to mm-hmm. tie it into this system like flocks, because again, I, 
I can provide some insight because I, I had a system like that. Of course, it was yeah, you did it. 20 years ago, <laughs> so it was a very different system. But You did that? What? Be, be Why quiet. are we talking? I'm getting, Why I'm are getting people working together, Jared? You're crazy. All Everyone right. deserves a second chance, Pete. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, so what? So my question is: What do people think they're doing for God when they're in these systems? They're, it's clear that they're not. They don't think that they're just supporting these narcissistic pastors for their own good. And like with these pyramid schemes, you think you're selling a product that you believe in or things. What? What do these? What do people think that they're doing for God? Like, how do they sell this to people? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, you may know the answer far better than I do, but I mean, in my mind, for one thing, they think they are there to honor God, and and that is like a ticket to heaven and a ticket to a good life. And they also think if they invest heavily in the church, with because they all preach prosperity doctrine, that if they give their money to the church, then they um, essentially God will give back to them, right? So just being in there and being present and worshiping, they think they're given a life in heaven and that their life on earth is going to be like quite good until they get there. Um, I think they also see their outreach as being incredibly important, saving other souls, like a lot of those members, they see new people coming in the door signing up. Holy shit, they've just literally rescued them from an infinity in the fiery pits of hell, and they've inserted them into a, you know, a golden ticket to heaven. That's, if they believe that, that's like genuinely the best thing you could ever do for someone. So getting new people in the door and, and putting on the best musical performance they can to, to, so that they come up to the front at the end and give their lives over to God and feel welcome, that's a huge motivator, I think. And the idea that, you know, potentially all they're doing is being fleeced and being sucked into a system won't even cross their minds, right? Right, right. Well, that's and that's what I have been thinking, because I've been trying to think through this this week as we are getting ready to talk to you of what what is it that, that people think that they're doing? And because I was wondering, is like there's certain verses mm. from the Bible that keeps coming up that you use and utilize, but I don't think it's that. I think it's actually deeper, where the entire system, so the brand is equated with the gospel, or the brand is equated with God slash Jesus, oh, absolutely. and then absolutely. you can just and, do whatever you want. Yeah, it's all the brand. And I mean, I'm not a scholar by any, uh, a lot of your guests know so much, but just looking at some of the sermons on YouTube that um, John Cameron and other pastors uh, um, it's just they're in loops. Like the, there's, they cherry pick certain verses out of nowhere, and the messaging over the years is just the same stuff. Like it's so the idea that it's sort of biblical is just so farcical because they're just picking like a few greatest hits. So they have like <laughs> three themes that, that reinforce oh. the system, and then they just find different ways to package that. Right. Oh, completely. And it's, I mean, it's this place, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the really insidious stuff. Like the, this word I kept coming across when I was talking to former members and interns and volunteers and staff is this idea of uplining. And, you know, what happens is if you're um, a young person who realizes they're whole, you know, their whole ticket to heaven is, is sort of based around their moral purity and, and how good they are, then, you know, if something bad happens to them or they, or they feel they've sinned, then they'll go to their life group leader and they'll tell them. What they don't realize is that that information is upline. So, it goes to the leader on top of them, the leader on top of them. Suddenly, a lot of people know about this deeply personal thing you've told to one person at that church who you admire. So, 
I heard stories of people that had been sexually assaulted and raped. They would go and tell this incredibly, sometimes criminal information to a leader. Suddenly, a lot of people know about that information and they are immediately often made to feel incredibly guilty about that thing that had nothing to do with them. And suddenly the only way that they can morally get back on track is to repent and to get deeper into the church and, and the level of guilt they feel and judgment from people because of this process of uplining. I mean, privacy be damned that, you know, the church could not care less. But that's just an example of a system they have in place, this idea called uplining, that does keep people in line and trapped in the system for years. You know, I, I spoke to one woman who had spent, that she'd been there since the church was formed. She'd been there nearly two decades. And she sees those two decades as being time in a vortex of just... Of, and she just can't believe it happened to her. You know, yeah. it, it's not people being sucked into this thing for six months. You've got people emerging, you know, from, from decades in the place. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact <laughs> instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, I mean it's it's like you you come in the door because they've you've been sold something. Uh, You're in deep 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 trouble with God. 
And uh-huh. we have the solution to that. And plus, we're fun to be around. We've got great music. Oh. We've got light shows. I actually spoke at a place once where they had like a fog machine, which was really cool. Actually, I could get used to that, Jared. But we're you not going to do it. Here the studio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it now. Um, but the thing is that, you know, that perpetuates itself because as you go through and real life hits you and you maybe think things are not part of the system or you are something that's not part of the system and you sort of tell that to people, that's just another thing to use to say that's the problem and we still have the solution to that. You can never get out. I mean, that's why I think for people who actually leave that, I know people who have left conservative churches that are not cultish, and it takes them years and years and years to get those voices out of their heads. Something like this, where, I mean, I don't know what the people's motives are who run this. <laughs> I really don't. I keep questioning that. I mean, I, on, I I keep questioning their motives. You know, I look at John Cameron and I go, look, is, is his motivation saving people from the eternal pits of hell? Or his, is his motivation to feel really good about himself and to have a nice house and a nice car and to sort of see this empire he's running? Right. And right. I, I wonder if it, if it evolves yeah. over time, too, where it begins oh, in a good absolutely. place, and then as it snowballs, yeah. you lose sight. Because you have so many fringe benefits there. You got a lot of nice stuff, you know? Completely. And I mean, I when I left, you know, I'm as I say, I'm agnostic now. When I left my belief system, I mean, I, I left because I... I, I found out I was bisexual, right? So that that for me was a soul crushing moment, um, where everyone around me was suddenly saying, "You essentially you uh, sinner, you're evil." You're, my whole life changed very quickly, and when that system, when when I realized that, uh oh, I don't fit in the system anymore, and you think, "Oh, I want to leave," I just remember years of trying to come up with like little hacks where I could keep my faith and keep my place in heaven, but still kind of be myself, but maybe not be a sinner. And yeah, when you extract yourself, it's really fucking hard to do. And it's, it's, unless you've been in that system, it's really hard to explain to someone. And, you know, I still, to this day, I'm 39 and there's still a little part in my brain that is worried that maybe hell's real and I'm going there. That, that will never leave because it was drilled into me when I was, um, before I could think, literally. So, yeah, leaving these places and, and, and I was in a very loose, form of christianity so if you're if you're in a really intense form of christianity plus you're financially tied up to it because you've given so much of your money there it's just i i i have a huge admiration for anyone that manages to get out yeah one one thing else i was just thinking of too is i wonder and this is an unformed thought so it may not hold water but i know for in in my experience in a lot of these places it also could it's it's simply lack of best practices and and figuring out how to do things right. So for instance like leadership it's it's this whole cottage industry within larger churches of like Christian leadership where they have conferences and you have a lot of books and things like that but they're not getting that information necessarily from researchers in management schools, they're getting it from other Christians who have led large churches. And so, you end up with these somewhat toxic like toxic practices because, and I think it is coming to, Pete, what made me think of it was what you said earlier, it comes from this, this, this biblicistic idea where everything we need to do to lead organizations or to do anything well is already in our hands in the Bible. 
So if it's in the, like, we just need the Bible. If we just read the Bible well, we would be great, you know, lead pastors of 10,000 people. And that just, I think, is toxic because it actually doesn't work. And then you end up with things like uplining, which might feel like a good practice in an organization if you don't, if you're not trained. (laughs) It's It's the governance that, or lack thereof, that is problematic. I mean, the main problem at all these mega churches is you've got these narcissists at the top that rule everything. And just looking at John Cameron, the 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 pastor I've been talking about. If if it was if he was leading any business, he would have resigned. Like, but he's sticking in there. And there was an internal memo circulated amongst leaders in this church saying, "Oh no, once this external review is complete, um, which the church is carrying out, John will be back to lead. He's the one that needs to carry out all these changes. And when clearly he's the last person imaginable that needs to carry out all these changes. So, where do you get this idea from? He's the one to do this anyway. Yeah. Well, it's it's mad because he's been successful. He took this model that Brian Houston set up, and he's grown a church to ten thousand. It's the biggest church in New Zealand for him. That is success. Who else could?" do that you know who else would be capable of such a feat that's what he'll be thinking and of course we're defining success in certain ways but you know before earlier david you used the word um we haven't even gotten to like some of the insidious stuff we haven't no well we we have a few minutes left i i would like to do this and here's why because i think there are people listening to this who might need their experiences validated somehow Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, people have lived through a lot of things and we have a very, I think, a diverse uh, listening audience. And um, it's not about dirt and, you know, say what you want to say about whatever, but what are some of those more insidious places? Where's the deep, dark underbelly where this sort of thing goes? Oh, I mean, the the things that really stood out to me in my reporting of this church were young people coming to their leaders with stories of sexual assault and rape and essentially being told um, those allegations being swept under the rug and them then being made to feel incredibly guilty um, about that. So certain situations where I believe things should have been taken to the police, they were literally hushed up. And, you know, some of the people involved in the assaults were church members. So that's highly problematic. But the other thing that I found really troubling was that we had stories of, you know, the leader, John Cameron, you know, verbally and physically, uh, I have to couch my language carefully again because of the litigious nature of these places. You know, John Cameron would physically grab people by the collar and scream at them if they missed a cue. So there was physical connections there, which were troubling in a workplace. And then, you know, I I would describe it, and it doesn't do it credit, but it's this lad culture, which is, I think, a very Australian and New Zealand way of terming things, where it's like laddish, like boys will be boys. And what that led to was some of these church tours, which arise would take around the country. You know, there would be punching and dead legs and at one point brent who is is cameron john cameron's brother who is high up in the hierarchy would um show his genitals and chase after um other um staff at the church you know that that sort of stuff led to one person having a mental breakdown you know he you know his, his genitals were exposed to him and that was now a running joke for years you know we'll always have that city so-and-so was the catchphrase that would always be repeated in public. And it's this laddish bullying culture that is so deeply embedded in this church that I found really 
um, awful. And it was just a really physical manifestation of the power structures that are deeply at play in these places. And, you know, when you're a young person who is figuring out the world and, you know, you're young and you're experimenting and you're trying to figure out who you are, these places, I could not think of a worse place to be to make you feel mentally unwell. It, it's, you know, they promise the answers, but all they give you is like guilt and a dead leg and sometimes flashing of someone's genitals. It's pretty weird. Yeah, it's this sense that you have the sense, again, that you have the answer. And so, you must be mature and wise and have all this experience mm-hmm. and you're seen in that way when, when in fact, it's not the case. They're 14 years old. Right. Pretty much, yeah. But can I ask about, as we as we get to the end, I did want to talk a little bit about maybe some solutions for how we can create better systems. And you talked about this earlier, and it's true in, in my experiences over the years as well in churches like this, where this this fake governance. So, again, we want to parrot the real world. So, we have a board, but it's really just church members who give a lot of money or have said really nice things about the lead pastor. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the structure of the rise was mad. I mean, when I started reporting this, there was a huge deal that John Cameron, the pastor, had you know left the board and resigned, you know, stepped down. What I found out was that he hadn't resigned from the church, stepping, it wasn't stepping down, he'd stepped aside. And then as far as the board went, um, the way that the rules were set up, even though he wasn't on the board anymore, he still had full approval as John Cameron about who got on the board. So it's so intrinsically cooked that the idea of the board being somehow, um, and they've since, since I reported that, have then changed that rule again. So they are making changes, which is what needs to happen. There need to be outside minds involved that can like look at this stuff objectively. When you've got 10,000 people under your control of, of essentially one person and his wife, then that's a lot of people and a lot of young people to look after. It's a lot of responsibility, and and one person can't do that. John Cameron can't do that. There need to be objective other players involved that understand how Christianity works and how this works as a business who can keep an eye on things and call people out. And again, like as long as John Cameron stays in control of this place, I would argue very little will change because um, it's all about him and it's not about the members. He, he could not care less about them. Uh, so, I look, I, again, this isn't my area of expertise. I don't know what that looks like, what that governance structure looks like, but it needs to be much more transparent and much clearer and Everything about this church needs to be really pulled apart and and put together again. Mm. And maybe we don't need 10,000 member churches. Maybe not. And I I should say this because a lot of people in my reporting have accused me of sort of being anti-Christian and and all sorts. And I'm, I'm really not. Like, if anything, reporting on this has made me remember, like, whoever you think and believe Jesus was, like... He was like a revolutionary. He had incredible ideas. He was kind. He was great. And when I look at what these mega churches are, they're not that. Like they're not, in my opinion, biblical. It's a different thing. So, yeah, I have very little beef with Christianity. I certainly don't have any beef with Jesus. It's what these systems have become. That's something else, in in my opinion. It's something else entirely. <clears throat> Maybe this is an unanswerable question, but I'm curious. How do we go from the Jesus we find in in the Bible, or even other these other iterations of Christianity throughout history, 
and then get to, because in my experience, these churches not only do find themselves being, they think they are biblical, they think they are following after Jesus, then not only that, but then in one of the most developed ways, like they're not even just doing it, they're doing it the best that you could do it. How, like, I don't, do you have any, did any, have you run across anyone who could explain how they got there? How we got to that point? Yeah, just how you, um, how you get to this system and someone being like, yeah, when I look at the Jesus of the Bible, like, I, this is exactly what I see. Oh, look, I don't know. I think you have some very, people getting into these positions of power, leading these churches who are, literally, they are narcissists. It's a, it's a, it's a condition of their brain they're wired in a certain way and i think when you have those people that cotton on to these religious beliefs and they also have uh they're driven by their image and their ego and their possessions um i just think that's an incredibly dangerous it's a it's an incredibly dangerous combo and it's how we've gotten to this point you know as i say brian houston has a lot to answer for i think that hillsong model proved to a place like New Zealand, of course, Brian was spent a lot of time in New Zealand. Um, they all copy that model, and it's it's a model that again it works. It's like it's a business. It's 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 much more business than than um, Christian. And and I don't know where we go from here. I don't know whether these churches can survive in their current state and be and not have casualties because I almost think that their current makeup they would not exist without creating trauma in people. And sure, some people have a great time, but I think what, how, as long as they exist in the structure, there's people that are going to be utterly messed up by the system. Is there a cultural component to this as well where I think it, it, I can – I'm just thinking we have a lot of maybe, say, Jewish guests, and I think of – you know, I don't remember what like the culture map of uh, different cultures that are more Jewish mega synagogues. Well, that's yeah, exactly. Where there's this like sense of like you're not going to probably convince a, a bunch of like uh, you, yeah, you're just it's it, there's a there's a sense in which our certain cultures might be more prone to or susceptible to like a celebrity type culture. Oh, abs- abs- yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the. I don't know. I, I don't. I, again, I'm not an expert on this. I mean, all the leaders I've written about at these mega churches, drawing people in, are fairly affluent white people. You know, this like, and and they are seen as being, you know, I think it's another example of colonialism and the the white man coming in to another culture and going, hey, this is what we're, um, this is the truth, this is how you get to heaven. Come to us, and you know, it, it's very complex, obviously, but I think there is something. In that, that the leaders are generally white and wealthy, and yeah, I mean, there's there's much bigger conversations, obviously, around colonization and Christianity and bringing that particular religion to um, whoever the original custodians of the land were. You know, that's a whole other conversation, right? Right. You know, and, and the thing about you mentioned about narcissism, I do think that's a component of this, and maybe another rule is don't have a narcissist as a leader, but you know. <laughs> they t- they tend to be in positions of leadership because they're good at it, right? But you know, and then you develop this church model, which is pretty much who you are is what everybody needs, and so it would breed maybe these larger churches rather than. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, someone I know who's a, a spiritual um, uh, uh, 
mentor of sorts. Uh, his name's David Benner, but he um, he was mm-hmm. once asked to come to a mega church. He didn't tell anybody what the name of the church was, but they say, hey, listen, a lot of our people are into contemplative stuff. Can, can you help us develop like an, a contemplative wing of our church so we can do that too? And he says, because yeah. a lot of people are leaving our church. And uh, David says, well, why don't you just let them leave? Maybe your church does something good for some people, but maybe it doesn't have to do everything good for everybody. It's like they didn't even know what to do with that. That was inconceivable to them that we're not we're not the eschaton here. We're, we we haven't reached this this eschatological moment where our church is the one that has the answers no, well, for that's everybody. The thing. That's that's the dream, right? I think in these mega churches' minds, they are the church, and ideally, they want the entirety of their country to be a member and for other churches to not exist. I think that is their happy place. And some of the recruitment, you know, I've heard stories um, with other mega churches in New Zealand. You know, church members go into university campuses and say, you know, do you want to come on to this event, or you know, are you a Christian, and they're not just looking for people that say, we're not a Christian, come to this thing. They're targeting people who say we are a Christian, but they're the wrong type of Christian. And they'll tell them why they're wrong, and they'll say, no, come to us, we've got the answers. And I think the second you've got a man saying we have the answer, and and it's removed from even you know, Jesus or any religious leader, it's like, just step away. Like, don't go there. It's not going to be good. Yeah. One of my favorite stories uh, when I was a pastor was we had a a gay couple and they wanted to be baptized first. And so, and actually we we all got together and decided, yeah, we can, we can baptize them. Um, That's fine. And then, yeah. And then they said, now they want to be members of our church. And in my mind, like, that's a no brainer. Like, of course, if you baptize them. So, and, but everyone said, no, they can't be members. And I'm like, so wait, they can be a part of God's family, but not, <laughs> not ours? Not like, ours. <laughs> so then the, the best part was we're sitting around with like uh, a leadership team and our technical director, who's not actually a pastor, but he was high up in the organization. So he was in this meeting. He just had this like flash of brilliance. And he was like, oh, oh my gosh, light bulb moment. There's a church right down the road that's affirming. Why don't we establish a partnership with them? And whenever gay people come to our church, we send them there to be members there because then they can be affirming. They can be a part. We can just have this joint partnership. Mm. And Mm. you would have thought he had grown like a second head the way everyone just stared at him. Like, (laughs) why would we? And it just brought out the prejudice and the bias, which is what you're saying. Like, well, actually when we're, when we're actually honest and upfront about it, we actually think they're just as wrong probably as atheists about this oh, thing. Completely. And so oh, I just and felt and so bad for him. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I love and I hate that story and its various elements. But what you just said, I mean, th- that's the other thing about these institutions. They're incredibly dishonest. I mean, a very small part of this bigger story that I was just personally interested in was their um, attitudes towards gay conversion therapy, which was something that was had been banned in New Zealand recently through Parliament. And, you know, I got emails, internal emails sent between the church that, you know, sorry, it's being sent externally saying, no, we do not practice gay conversion therapy. It's not a thing. It's not something we're worried about. So that's their public image. But internally, what they would be doing to young people is literally handing them a little prayer tract and getting them to pray the gay away and telling them that this is absolutely sinful and awful. This is gay conversion therapy, you know. And so there's this incredible dishonesty um, with what they're putting out uh, into the world and what they're actually doing to young people. And I, I find that pretty abhorrent. 
And just uh, to be honest, like just pretty unchristian. <laughs> it's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. 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 Well, David, thank you so much for sharing the work that you've been doing. And what can where can people find if they want to follow your writings on this? Because I, I know you're coming out with new stuff all the time around these churches. Where can people find that? Yeah, look, best place is um, webworm.co, um, not .com. I couldn't afford to get a .com, so it's webworm.co. And it's a subscription service, but all my coverage of, of mega churches and other things I write about that I deem important, it's all free to read. Um, there's nothing behind a paywall, so um, you're welcome to jump in there and have a look. Excellent. Thanks so much, David, for jumping on. Appreciate it. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before you go, we want to give a huge shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Philip Gibson, Dorsey Marshall, Michelle Casey, Michelle Oni Snyder, Marilyn Johnson, Denise Howard, Ed McNamara, Logan Jansen, Matt Sutton, and Darlene Sinclair. If you'd like to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review or just tell others about our show. You can also head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spade, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing director Savannah Locke, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma ohio challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org